people kind of dread the time, but I, I, I've got to admit, I, I do enjoy it. I guess I'm part of that old school uh, that has those family traditions that mean so much. Maybe like you, I hang Christmas tree lights outside that I put garland around in the home. Um, I set up a nativity scene. I arrange a little porcelain village that I painted a number of years ago. For the Christmas time, I place poinsettias. Somebody else has done a great job putting poinsettias out in my home. And um, I play great Christmas music as well. So, yeah, I'm really one who enjoys the season. But what I enjoy most about Christmas is to be able to study and to preach about the significance of this most wonderful, miraculous event in history. I'm amazed how it is the fulfillment of many prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And I want to share with you some of my excitement and some of my delight in looking at a prophecy given many years before Christ and see how it's fulfilled in him. But before we get to our text this morning, I want to make a few preliminary comments about the text, which is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. The words we're going to look at, or at least some of them, are words that you have probably seen every Christmas on Christmas cards, or you've heard sung by great choirs. So you're somewhat familiar, but we want to look at what do they mean? How are they fulfilled in Christ? And how are they relevant to us? You know those words, for unto us... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. What a wonderful uh, list of names that characterize this one we call Jesus Christ. And we want to look further into that text to try to see how it can help us appreciate, if you would, even more this Christmas season. But before we get to the text, I also want to read to you a verse of Scripture, verses from our Lord Jesus prior to his ascension to heaven. He was instructing his disciples, reminding them of all the things that he had taught them about himself. And you'll find these words in Luke 24, Verses 44 through 45. If you have your Bible, please turn there. And that's one thing I'm hoping today you will take out your Bible and that you will follow along because we want to make sure that we are people of the word. The Lord Jesus was trying to help his disciples read the Bible, the Bible they had, the Old Testament. The Old Testament is more than just a history It is his story, his legacy, his family, the promises about him. And so the Lord is teaching his disciples how to read, understand the Bible, the Old Testament, and how it is fulfilled in Christ. In the Old Testament, Jesus is veiled. In the New Testament, he's unveiled for us to see in flesh. 
He said these words. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And the next little phrase is so important. Concerning who? Me. That all that was written from Genesis through Malachi are about me. And I want you to learn how to read it so that you learn about me even from the very beginning through the prophet Malachi. The very first promise that God made to mankind was given to Adam and Eve in the presence of the serpent. It's found in Genesis 3.15. Maybe it's familiar to you. Let me read it to you. The Lord is giving a reason for hope for humanity who has fallen in sin, but is also declaring triumph over the serpent and the curse. And he says, And I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, the serpent's seed, and her seed, the woman's seed. And he, it is a son from the woman, shall bruise your head, crush your head, even though you shall bruise his heel. Satan, you will attempt to crucify the Christ, but he will ultimately crush your head. Utter defeat, triumph. That is what we want to look at, is see how in some way our Lord Jesus is talked about and portrayed in the gospel according to Isaiah that is going to talk about our Lord Jesus. This prophecy is given 750 years before the birth of our Savior. That's an amazing thing. Think about that. That it will be so fulfilled as we shall see. But before we do, let's pray. Let's pray that the Lord will work in our heart and lives. Let's, let's look at this in a fresh new way. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us in a way that we can feel that we have engaged the Holy Spirit's work in our heart and our mind. That we can walk out of here with a deeper appreciation to who Christ is and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year. It is certainly a, a busy time for many. It is a time where the world seems to uh, celebrate, but not necessarily to celebrate the birth of your beloved son. But this morning we desire to look at your word, in particular Isaiah chapter 9, and ask for your Holy Spirit to give us insight so that we might see the beauty of Christ, that we might see how he is the light the light of the world that turns the gloom of life and uh, of this earth into glory. May you give hope and encouragement to your people here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sun is the great light of our solar system. And its properties uh, penetrate the cold darkness of outer space. And without it, the earth would be an uninhabitable cube of ice tumbling aimlessly throughout the cosmos. 
There would be only perpetual night on the earth with no warm summer days. And without the sun, no living creature could exist on this terrestrial ball. However, as essential as this light of the sun is to the earth, we must remember this morning that it is but one essential creation spoken into existence by the one who said, I am the light of the world. Jesus Christ is the great light foreseen by the ancient prophet Isaiah. Isaiah gave his prophecy in one of the darkest days of Israel. Let's look at that scripture together. We find it in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Let's, let me read it as uh, you follow along in your Bible or for some may need to look at the screen. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land before the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now comes that glorious uh, chorus to this almost wonderful hymn or carol. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and of peace, there will be no end. And the on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And this last phrase, we usually just kind of cruise right through it. But please remember this. We will hopefully close with these thoughts. The zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a prophecy that says God is passionate to bring the salvation of souls. So much so that he'll send his son. But he will... Make sure that everything he's ordained will come to pass. God is a passionate God. And he's passionate about Christ. About Christ coming to us and saving us from our sin. God is not off in the distance. He's not out there sort of hoping this will all work together for good. He's making it work together for good. So what we're reading is God's declaration that he will bring this to pass. And he did. 
and there is still yet more to see and more to understand. We learn first that Christ will light up shadow lamp. He will do that. We've read here from Isaiah that he shined brightly. It's prophetic that he will, but we're looking at it as he will and he is. He shined brightly upon those who walked in spiritual darkness. The history of of, of, uh, Israel's oppression during the days of Isaiah are written and recorded in the previous chapters, chapters 7 through 9. And the nation was surrounded by invading armies, and the city of Jerusalem was under siege. It was a mist of these dark and dreary and uh, dismal days that Isaiah gave a prophecy in chapter 7. A, a prophecy of hope for all the nations. And this prophecy was that God would send forth the Son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. But this prophecy, rather than turning the hearts of the people back to the Lord, did quite the contrary. They turned their face from the Lord even more. And they began to inquire of mediums and seers or people of the occult. Of the nation, especially the northern regions that are mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy, tragically fell into a time of unparalleled distress and darkness until the day that the light came in Galilee. Isaiah foresaw the day of Christ's birth and ministry, that he would turn the gloom, the gloom of humanity, the uh, despair, the depression of people living in the northern region into glory. That he would make the way to the sea glorious. And this is exactly what Jesus did. This is where, these places we're talking about, the northern regions, this is exactly where Jesus began his ministry. And this is where he first declared, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was the great light to turn our gloom into glory. Listen to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, we'll just look at verses 4 and 9 through 11. Turn or listen. In him, that is Christ the Word, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone has come, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and what happened? And his own people did not receive him. See, the light that Isaiah prophesied would come into the dark land of Galilee did come. Came to what I say shadow land. Where the shadow of sin had spread and shrouded the people. 
But the people did not receive Christ because, as Jesus said, men love the darkness rather than the light because of their sin. So what do we learn from Isaiah that helps us to understand what Jesus was saying? In what way can we say that Isaiah chapter 9 was fulfilled by our Lord? That he even knew of this prophecy? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, please uh, turn there if you have your Bibles. I don't have the words for you on the screen, but uh, it's good for you to do a little walking through the pages of that book or in your uh, iPhone or iPad. uh, Look at the scriptures together. Did... Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. And how do we know that? Matthew 4 gives us the answer. He said, now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory or of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilees, the people dwelling in darkness have what? Seen a great light, and, those, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. And from that time Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to his own. And his own were blinded by the darkness. If you were to come up with a description of the day in which we live, how would you describe it? What if I suggest it would be much like it was in the days when Christ first came? If you were to describe what is life like here in America, I suggest you could very easily say that it is a land where the clouds of darkness and gloom are beginning to shroud our country. I go to other countries, uh, as you may know, and I could see people living in, dwell, uh, in darkness and despair. They are discouraged. There doesn't seem to be much hope. That's why I love going to people who have not heard the gospel or to go to pastors who are discouraged. To remind them that we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the hope of the world. It gives light in darkness. And there's a sense in which, if you were to describe our day, I would say it's, it's a dark day. It could and very likely will get darker. And if we are to be able to face this darkness without being in gloom and despair because of what's happening, whether it's political, whether it's financial or whatever... We must remember the light. It's Christ. He's going to light our way. Even in darkness, especially in darkness. We're going to need his light. We need to know what he can do for us. For us, Christmas is our celebration of the birth of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. Savior. And the light of the world that Isaiah said. Let's look further. He turned his people's gloom into gladness. Those who once walked in the shadow of death and darkness, Isaiah, you're going to see a light, a great light. 
and it will be God with you, Emmanuel. His glory will push back the gloom and despair. He will fulfill some of the wonderful passages of scripture that we read in the, New, in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 23. Where there in verse 4 it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Why? He says, For you are with me. Have you ever inserted the word or name Emmanuel? That is behind that idea. If you were to read um, as well from Isaiah 43 2, the Lord says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. It's another way of saying Emmanuel. I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. This is God promising that even though we go through dark days, and maybe darker, we don't walk it alone. The light has come. The light is with us. The light is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's our light in this dark world. That is why the world is in desperate need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the gospel is neglected, you'll find darkness. And where you find the gospel preached, you will find conflict. Because the light and the darkness are at odds. I go to other countries and I, I have had to face firsthand things I hadn't before or at least so obvious, of when I'm preaching or I'm teaching to have people in the congregation who are guests or whatever to, um, we're not familiar with this, but possess people. And they cry out. I mean, we're not, you know, uh, we're not familiar with that. That sounds kind of spooky. It sounds kind of like, uh, I don't believe that stuff. It's all psychological. Well, come with me sometime. Uh, and uh, you will see that we are in a battle. It's the light against the darkness. It truly is. And that uh, Christ has shined a light that's so bright that the darkness wants to hide, and it wants to hide in the darkness. But our gospel brings hope like nothing else. If you're here this morning don't don't know Christ, then... You're like one trying to find your way, stumble through the darkness. But there is a light, and that light is Christ himself. Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, he saw the darkness of the day, but he also knew of the promise of his son to be the preparer for the way of the Lord. But he also knew who Christ was going to, what he was going to do. And listen to his words. They sound like they're from uh, Isaiah, he say, day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that is exactly what we should be able to say today. That it is Christ who's entered into time and space, into the darkness to guide us and to lead us, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace even though there is conflict Peace in the midst of chaos. He can give us peace. That's what he's promised. I think that's in essence uh, what 
Charles Wesley thought about when he wrote to the great carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring with a seed of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. This is the hope of every generation. Not just that we shall someday be present with God, which we will, but Emmanuel is even here now. He came and he gave us his Holy Spirit to indwell us. We now enjoy the presence of God through the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And he's a pledge, he's a guarantor of what is yet ahead. So the light has come, Emmanuel has come, he has come to bring us light and hope. Christ also liberates the captive in Shadowland. That is what he came to do. Savior. She called his name Jesus because he shall what? Save his people from their sin. He shall save them from the curse of sin and death. He would emancipate those who were enslaved in darkness. Isaiah announced that when Christ came to Galilee, there would be reason to rejoice. Like the joy of a people who have gathered their fruit and their harvest. Like the celebration of triumph and battle after they've divided up the spoil. Most of uh, Israel's national treasures had been ransacked and taken away by the enemy. And the news of Messiah coming was intended to give his people hope. Without hope, the people perish. Christ has come to give us hope. He would come as a valiant warrior, a deliverer, far greater than Moses. He would deliver those in darkness from sin and death. And this was something only God can do. And Jesus referred to himself as our emancipator in these words in John 8, 34 through 36. Listen. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Now listen to this. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He's the emancipator. Set us free from the curse so that we can now say with assurance, there's therefore now No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not under condemnation. We have reason to rejoice. Like at harvest or the battle of triumph. And Christ will destroy the enemy. His triumph, however, would come through through brokenness. Uh, This is just so hard. was for Israel. It's hard for people to understand this today as well. That what Isaiah is saying, that God is going to bring triumph, that the emancipator is going to be a mighty warrior who will defeat sin and death through brokenness. You would think the mighty warrior is going to come and he's going to trample everybody underfoot. 
like which will happen when the great judgment comes. But for his first coming, he's going to come in brokenness. He will come in a form that we will not recognize his beauty or his glory. And Isaiah says that his victory will be like that that was accomplished through Gideon uh, in the valley of Morah. Let me just take a minute to explain that battle and you can say, why would Isaiah say that he will bring triumph like what happened in the days of Gideon? Let me try my best to capsulize that for you very quickly. The Midianites were invading Israel, usually the northern region, like Galilee. And Gideon was called upon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. When Gideon saw the vast number of the enemy, he was overwhelmed. Like, Lord, why would you call me to fight and lead a battle against this people? They are far bigger, far more uh, troops. They have weaponry we don't have. How can we do this? How can we defend ourselves? And the Lord said, I have instructions for you. Here's what you do. You have 32,000 men. And you know my battle strategy? Reduce them. <laughs> and it's sort of like, I was, you know, it'd be like um, getting going, Ex- excuse me, Laura, I thought you said to reduce our number down from 32,000 to what number? 300? Lord, how could that ever be? And the Lord said, I'm doing this so that when victory comes, you will not think it was because of your great battle skills or because you are such a great leader. They're going to see that my greatness comes through brokenness. It comes through weakness so that you could see the glory of God come through brokenness. So here's what the Lord did. It, you know, we talk about the strategies of the Lord in battle. Try Jericho, walking around a place for seven days and then blow a trumpet. Well, this one is in some ways even more mysterious. He says, here's what you do. You take these 300 men, place them in three areas around the camp of the Midianites. And here's what you give them. Give them a trumpet. And give them a torch that will be inside a clay vessel. It's again, if I were Gideon, I'd say, excuse me, Lord, uh, where do we put the uh, swords here? I thought you said we're going to defend them. What do we have? Take the vessel with the torch. Take the trumpet. And here's what you do. You wait until the late night when there's a change in the guard. And what you do at the moment that you're ready, you tell your men to blow the trumpet as loud as they can all together. And then I want you to break that clay vessel, that jar, and let the light shine. And that's exactly what he did. And guess what happened? The troops, the Midianite troop and camp, they were sleeping in. And all of a sudden, they hear this 
like uh, stereo around them turned to full decibel. All these trumpets blaring, and these guys are trying to wake up. They they reach for their swords, and the next thing they look, there are all these... uh, Uh, They hear the sound of these uh, vessels being broken. And all of a sudden they see the light and these torches moving around, coming towards them. They get up and they start swinging their swords and they start killing each other. They were in the darkness and the light came. And the light dispelled the darkness. And Gideon's army defeated the overwhelming forces of darkness. That is what Isaiah is saying. That's how God is going to bring about the defeat of sin and death. It's going to be through one who will be a clay vessel. God in flesh. The glory of God veiled in human flesh. And when his jar is broken the glory of God will shine. And it shone shone most gloriously at three o'clock on a dark day in Jerusalem over a place called Golgotha. It was shrouded in darkness and when the clay vessel was broken, the light of God's glory and grace shone, and it's still shining today. That's what Isaiah is teaching us. That is what he's trying to say. He will destroy the enemy. He will destroy the, the one who has this rod to oppress us. He, he's, he's going to destroy the one who has a yoke that's around us, that enslaves us to sin, enslaves us to the curse. Certainly, that is what our Lord Jesus did on the cross. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when his body was broken, the great glory of God was revealed. And that's the gospel we preach. And when the vessel was broken, he made possible everlasting peace to Shadowland. He is the God-man promised, prophesied by Isaiah. He says, for unto us a child is born. The child who was born was God in flesh, Emmanuel. The co-equal with God the Father, as we read in John chapter 1, verse 1. He is the same one who called light out of darkness and spun the countless brilliant spiraling galaxies into space. That's the one who came. He's the child promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and David. He stepped out of eternity because his father sent him to keep us from perishing and to give us everlasting. He came and took upon himself the form of a bondservant 
clay vessel and came in the appearance as a man. He also says a son is given like the promise that the Lord made to Adam and Eve that to her would be given a son and that the son would crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent will try to crush his heel. This is Emmanuel. Christ is the eternal one, the only son of the father. By that, we don't mean that he was procreated. We mean that he was in this wonderful relationship with the one that we call the father, and he does. Out of an infinite love for the world, the father gave his only son. Talk about love. Talk about the, the, the grace of God. You have only to look at Christmas to see how deeply God is passionately in love with us. I don't think any of us will ever, even in heaven, fully comprehend the love of God. If you're here this morning and say, you know, I don't know if God loves me. Or I think he loves him more than me because I'm having problems and he doesn't appear to be. You need to think of the Christmas story. You need to think of Easter. You need to get back and thinking of Christ. He was sent because God loved you. He loves you now because he's going to love us forevermore. He's determined to do this. And he will accomplish it by the zeal and the sovereign power that he has. The son is the one in whom the father was well pleased. To the son will be given the nations of the world and all things will be under his feet. And Jesus knew that. He knew Psalm 2. So when Jesus' vessel was being broken, he cried out to the Father, it is finished. I have finished the work you have given me to do. He is the one who now rules the kingdoms of the earth. He rules as the king of the kingdom of light. He is, as Jesus said, the light of the world. He alone has authority and power to govern his kingdom and to govern all things. Even today, I, I was in China during the election and for a brief moment when I got the results, I thought, Lord, how could you do this? <laughs> because I saw it as more than a, an election between you know, one candidate and the other. It was really, in many ways, in my estimation, I'm not trying to be a political beast here, but it seemed to be a decision between who are we going to be? And I wondered about how could God do it. And my answer quickly came, is because he's God. We deserve the kings we get. The kings we have are the kings that God has given. And he will take them down as he pleases. Sets them up as he pleases. Because somehow God is going to use this to bring about God's purposes. I don't know what they are for sure. But maybe in these days that we see as darkness, the church will turn back to the light. We will not hesitate to preach the gospel. 
we will cling to each other in difficult days. We will see that we have hope together. We will see that God will unite us in ways we've never understood. When I go to to China, I'm learning about a little bit what it might have been like in the early church. They cannot evangelize without being thrown in jail. And yet, how is it that it's the fastest growing work in the world of the Holy Spirit? I can tell you the answer is because God's doing it. He's zealous to bring about the gospel. And the thing that the church has going for it are just a few things. You're going to say, well, that wouldn't work here. Oh, really? They're committed to the preaching of the word. Worship. Read the scripture in in the service, a lot of it. And prayer. And the other thing, they're deeply committed to each other. They have to be. That is transforming what's happening in darkness. And maybe we just are not aware that we're in darkness. But the Lord is the light, and he's come, and he wants to give us hope. And he, Isaiah says, and he is one who has four titles or names given to us. Wonderful Counselor. He not only works marvelous, stupendous things, but counsels his people with infinite, perfect wisdom and understanding. That's exactly what you need in days of darkness, is someone who can give us counsel. God's people must believe that God will counsel them through the darkness. He is our mighty God. Emmanuel, our mighty warrior. He fights on our behalf. He goes before us. He is the God who is supreme, all-powerful, sovereign over all things. He is called our everlasting father, and that may seem like a contradiction. If he's the son, how could he be the everlasting father? And I think I could explain it this way. He's not the father, but he is the son who perfectly reveals the father to us. Emmanuel is our father in the sense that he is the transcendent author and possessor of time. He holds the vast, unfathomable treasures of eternity in his hands. He's the one who declared the end from the beginning. All that the father ordained, even before the foundation of the world, will be finally, faithfully implemented and completed by the son. Nothing will be left undone. Jesus Christ is the one who is referred to as the ancient of days and the father of the fatherless. If you want to see, if you want to understand the, the appearances of the angel of the Lord and those, those who are called God in the Old Testament, those are called, they are usually given the name Lord, and that is, I believe, the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. I think that Isaiah has that in mind. That's why Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He who has seen me has seen who? The Father. It's a mystery to us, but it's nevertheless. If you want to know what the Father's like, check out the Son. Uh, When I go to Haiti, they always ask me, what's God like? And I said, well, the best place for me to start with is let's start with who's Christ. 
Once they can begin to understand who Christ is as God incarnate, they begin to understand him in ways that, you know, that's where you start. And I think that's what we should do. He's also called the Prince of Peace. He's the conquering priest. He's a prince. He's the triumphant king. And he's the one who makes peace with God possible. That's why the angels announced uh, this beautiful song or these words uh, to, the she- to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Goodwill towards men. Christ came not just to give peace between men or peace within. He came foremost to give peace with God. Because we are at enmity with God without Christ. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, and not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. How could he say that? Because Emmanuel, God with us, the light is here. It's still here. And he brought everlasting peace. We've talked about that. And Christ will passionately fulfill All that he has ordained. I love that last section. It says the zeal, the passion, the the joy of the Lord of hosts. Who's the Lord of hosts? It is Christ. He will perform this. Everything that he has promised, everything that has been promised about him will be fulfilled. He will bring it about just as he promised. So this morning... As we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper. Could I remind us of, of the one who is referred to as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. I can't think of a more appropriate way to celebrate him than what he gave to us is a meal. The Lord's Supper. The body, the bread is broken. Just as the clay vessels were broken at the day of Midian's defeat. The blood, the wine, the juice that we take is a reminder that Christ became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He took the enmity we had. He took all of my sin upon himself and the father exhausted his wrath on his son rather than on me. And us. That's why this is a celebration time. That's why Christmas we celebrate what God has done. A wonderful thing. One little thing I would just have you consider. This would be for families here. Sort of application. Here's what I'd suggest. Maybe Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. Take a candle. Maybe a large candle and put it somewhere for your family and you got you all to look at. Read Isaiah 9 or part of it. Read about Jesus Christ as the light. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 or something like that. Read it. If you have children, say, this is light and turn down the lights, light the candle and read the scripture. This is the light of the world that was promised to us. Jesus is our light. Light gives us hope. Kids, we have hope. Even in darkness, our hope is in Christ. Pray, 
sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Something like that. If you can't sing, pray, and then open your gifts. <laughs> Let me pray. Pastor Bill, what a delight for me to be able to join in with him as well as he leads us in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you, Father, for sending your beloved Son to us, the light of the world, the hope of the world, the Savior of the world. Bless your people today, Lord. Give them hope and encouragement. I pray, Lord, that if there are those who are dwelling in darkness and who do not have the light, that your Holy Spirit will shine your light in them and give them a faith to believe, a faith to trust in Christ. Lord, for those of us who have come to know Christ, may this day as this season be a time of rejoicing, as at harvest, as at the day of triumph. And if there are those who are feeling broken, Lord, remind us that it is in our brokenness and our weakness that you show your strength and you show your light. Let us, Lord, be those who are willing to be used of you to declare your glory to others. Bless now our time as we come to the table to take of the bread and the cup. Bless us as we remember you in Jesus' name. Amen.